Need a new set of optics? For more than a decade, Riton Optics has been providing optic solutions for hunters and shooters of all types and disciplines. Check out their Primal line for those products geared more towards us hunters. From binoculars and spotting scopes to your basic 3-9 to nine scopes and longer range crossover models, the Primal line from Riton was made for hunters. Learn more at RitonOptics.com. That's Riton, R-I-T-O-N, Optics.com. and welcome to the Where to Hunt podcast, the podcast that connects public land hunting enthusiasts. Today is March 5th, 2019. I'm your host, Eric Clark, and uh, finally got the mic unpacked in the new house, ready to kick things back off. And on today's episode, I bring on guest Jeremy Starks. Uh, Jeremy Starks is a biologist. He's been on the show in the past, super knowledgeable guest. Um, He's an ambassador for Bowtech. Um, just a great guy, and uh, we have a, a similar passion for um, anti-bullying and, and buck shaming and hunting. Uh, but additionally, with the um, you know shed season, shed hunting season, if you want to call it that, kind of underway um, in different parts of the country, and certainly about to take off here in Wisconsin and the Midwest as some of the snow melts and temps hopefully rise or start to rise soon. Um, some good scientific tips and, and information around antler growth and um, really ties into your 2019 you know scouting efforts because you know serious hunters we all know that you're, you're going to be doing that year round and it really does start um, you know the, the moment the 2018 season ends so um, you know I won't I won't bore everybody by talking too much I'll go ahead and bring Jeremy on right now it was a great it was a great episode some good good nuggets of information in here so Hopefully, there's some value in, the, in this for everybody. I have on the line with me today, Jeremy Starks. Jeremy, uh, how you doing, man? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, we've had you on in the past, um, and I know that you're a biologist. Are you a, are you a particular kind of biologist? Um, would you refer to it differently than just biologist, or would you call it like whitetail biologist, wildlife biologist? Wildlife biologist. Um. So if you want to maybe just start by introducing yourself to the audience, we got a couple people starting to flow into the live session here. So about four or five viewers popping in. Um, maybe just a quick overview of, you know, what you hunt, where you're from, well, I've been, uh, what you do. You know, I've uh, I actually I fished professionally on the Bassmaster Elite Series for some time and, and started a uh, business partner, started a tackle box company, Bass Mafia, and loved to fish made a living with it but my passion has always been whitetail and i've spent a lifetime studying them and and uh hence you and i talking and getting to know one another but i think we share similar interests but in particular i loved archery hunt and uh, so here we are today i've i've spent a lot of time chasing these things around the mountains and all over the country and and try to share some of that knowledge with on Botech. We have a show. Uh, I work with David Miller and, and Chef Jonathan Collins, and we do a, 
a monthly show. We actually do uh, bi-monthly where we, we teach people a little bit about the science of whitetail and let them draw their own conclusions on the hunting procedures. You know, we'll steer them in certain directions, but we're not saying, hey, go hang your tree stand here or or hunt this edge. We're just giving you the facts about how whitetail perceive their environment, how they operate, and, and hope, hopefully help guys be, and women, better hunters. I like the way that you say that how whitetail perceive their environment. That's a pretty cool way to put it. So, and the reason, or maybe not the reason, but one of the things we want to talk about today is, um, you know, given the time of year, at least here in Wisconsin, you know, shed hunting is going to become a really big um, pastime if it hasn't been started already. We've had, we have a lot of snow here. It's been super cold. So I know I, you know, pay attention to social media like the rest of us, and I'm starting to see a lot of people out shed hunting and actually having some success. But around that topic, um, I thought it'd be, fun and in fact you thought it would be fun to um to talk about how how deer grow their antlers from a scientific perspective so maybe we can start to kind of unpack that a little bit you know when they start growing and when they drop them how much do they typically grow how fast all that good stuff well antler development as well as shedding of antlers it's all triggered by testosterone so as uh, the testosterone in late summer begins to peak the antlers become hard they lose the velvet the antler stops growing as their testosterone levels increase Uh, during that same time is one of the reasons you know people say well i had this deer all summer on camera and he got hard horned and disappeared well there's there's several reasons for that one as that testosterone increases their certain food requirements or what they're looking for changes. They go from more of that high protein to start wanting more and more carbohydrates. You know, they're looking for acorns and, and other types of browse. They'll really start switching over to like beggar's lice, the great orb and browse that they look for in late summer. So that's, that's part of that antler development process. And then, you know, in the winter after the rut is over, we see the testosterone decrease and the antlers shed. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of studies been done and, and nothing extremely conclusive. But one thing that we've noticed is perhaps when you have a little bit later rut and that testosterone will kick back in again, then you have a little bit later drop of the antler. Um, you know, every deer is different. They're not all the same. That's why you see some drop in December and some drop in April. But it's still just a general consensus um, of how that timeline occurs. Um and then one thing that you and I talked about before is how that actual antler is grown, and, and that is by borrowing minerals from its bone structure. So going out and dumping all this antler grow and, and the mix and the minerals and expecting immediate results is just uh, not going to happen. It is a long-term process of getting that deer healthy, developing a good, strong bone structure, and then you can start to see a stronger antler development. So how does that, um, I want, I want to take this over the place. You might have to reel me in, but you, you mentioned like some deer might, they might get a spike, right? in testosterone from a, a late rut or a second rut or something to that effect. Um, and you're saying the ones that maybe have that, are they dropping them sooner than later? No, they'll drop them later. You know, that again, the testosterone increase keeps the antler on their head a little longer when that testosterone decreases is when they shed their antlers and so when they shed their antlers how 
how much does that impact their their general behavior? You know, um, what is the what is the I don't know, kind of the life cycle of their behavior well, as their antlers are growing? I don't, I don't think it's so much that um, it has anything to do with the antler not being there as much as it does the fact that now this is a different animal. He's got really low testosterone. He's not acting the same as he does when he's you know fully in rut or preparing for the rut. So you'll start to see bucks start to get, again, in bachelor groups. Um, you see the same thing in the turkey population, but they'll be in bachelor groups up until, again, that testosterone spikes and they start fighting amongst one another and looking uh, to breed. So, it's a, you know, it's just that constant repetitive cycle. Uh, but it also allows us to, especially with trail cams, we can learn individual deer and see how every deer has certain characteristics. Now, you may be able to group them all into three categories or four, but you still will notice certain traits that one buck has. And when you can pick that out, it helps you, you know, hunt that particular animal. You know, I've, I've had leases and farms. The one particular deer that stands out so much in my mind uh, was a buck junior, and we had you know, 15 cameras around a really large piece of property. And there would be certain times that you would see him on every single camera on that property. And, Hmm. you know, he just loved to move around. And then you had other deer that you literally could have cameras in every hundred yards in a 500 yard circle. And you would only get pictures of him on one and one all year. He just had a really small, Uh, home area he felt comfortable there and we see that you know there's certain deer that like to roam and you know i've always believed that's the particular deer that typically and especially on public land where they're not protected they don't live as long you know is it the the big giant buck uh he got big because he was super smart or was it because he was just a loner and you know avoided people avoided pressure avoided other animals so there's a lot to that and trail cameras are a great resource in learning that particular animal and so along that same those same lines you talk about that it borrows minerals from its bone structure um and like and we did discuss this last time you're on too that you're not going to go buy some minerals and then expect that that you know that rack to blossom overnight so to speak but you know to back up a little bit more how how much you know, based on your expertise, do you think genetics have a have a role in, you know, antler growth um, characteristics, whether it's, you know, typical um, and things of that nature? Oh, it has a, I mean, the biggest part. Genetics is everything. And a great percentage of the genetics for each buck come from the, the doe rather than the father. But, mm-hmm. you know, getting back to the minerals, the mineral is important for overall herd health. The does, the lactating does need it just as importantly as the bucks. It's is important for just uh, one thing that we look past is during the spring, early summer, the, their diet primarily changes to forbs. 70 to 80% of their diet that time of year are forbs, which are very, um, have a lot of water. I mean, so their diet is a lot of water and fiber. So they have so much water intake that they'll actually become calcium deficient. And (laughs) that's where having those minerals there and getting that back into their system and sodium deficient. So that will really 
boosts their system, keeps the lactin and goes healthy. It's important for the bone structures of these young developing bucks. So keeping that mineral out year-round, always part of my management plan. So I had a thought there, one that I didn't realize played a role in it, which is obvious when you say it, it's kind of like hindsight's twenty twenty. but making sure that the does are getting the minerals that they need when they're lactating and things like that is just as important. It's it's funny how much you think antler growth and big bucks and you start to get the blinders on and get narrow sighted and not look at the other side of the equation. And I don't know how much um, human genetics are, are relatable to um, deer, but you know, if there's any common ground that can be drawn, but it's interesting that it said that, you know, um, so I'm, I'm bald. I'll take my hat off in the video here. Everyone knows that I think, but that comes from my mom's side of the family, not my dad. So my dad has a full head of hair, whereas my grandfather on my mom's side is bald like I am. And so that's kind of interesting that you say that, you know, a lot of the antler growth or the genetics that they'll get comes from the doe. I didn't, I did not know that. Yes, it does. And, but again, if you, if you view it as an overall, management plan taking care and health of the deer herd you know you're going to see i'm not necessarily going to say that you're going to change the genetics because that's impossible um university of texas done a study some years ago where they took two identical pieces of land that were high fenced Um, they did not have any introduction of outside deer they just managed what was there on one farm or one ranch they shot any buck they wanted to. There was no management practice whatsoever. On the on farm two, which were again identical in size and uh, nature and terrain, they managed exclusively for more mature bucks. Um, they they implemented a management plan where they shot young eight points and and really done everything that we thought we knew to increase antler size and after 20 years there was zero difference in Mm -hmm. antler development on per age class on either farm so in 20 years we just don't have enough time in in one hunter's lifetime to make an impact so having said that our best method is far more creating good health plenty of does that are breeding uh, a good ratio plenty of feed for these animals and not worrying about the genetics so much. Interesting. So the whole, you know, talking about the, the 20 years of data and that not being, you know, quite sufficient just yet. Um, you know, how, what's your stance on the whole, let them grow, um, you know, saying in philosophy, right? Let them, let them go, let them grow, let them pass all that kind of stuff. Like how, what, what, where do some of those big jumps come from, from year one to two to three, et cetera, where, you know, the, the mass and the antlers, the growth can really change that trajectory well, with some now, of the science behind that. On, let's go on healthy, stronger animals. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Okay. Um, not always does the strongest, healthiest animal have the largest rack. Doesn't mean he doesn't have a good, strong, mature. I mean, I think most bucks are capable of developing a desirable, when given the right uh, opportunity to to reach maturity, most bucks will have a desirable rack. Um, but let's let's talk about increasing or survival. The fittest, the strong, the healthy, mature animals. The, the more mature the healthier does if we kill everything at a young age 
and we're killing all these two-year-olds and three-year-olds. And which deer are we allowing to, we're not letting them develop until a fighting uh, breeding age where we know what they are, where they're competing to be the survival of the fittest. Does that make any sense? Um, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. We're we're not allowing the maturity and mother nature to take place. We're just completely eliminating that fight to or or will to survive, and we're just killing randomly these young animals, and we don't know which are the strongest. So that's one you know, uh, argument in letting these deer survive and shooting only five and a half and six year olds, because you know, which deer are capable of getting to that age, you know, which ones are fighting the other bucks for the right to breed. So you're getting a stronger, more developed herd. Um, and when you just keep killing all these young ones, you're allowing deer that may in other, in, in any other situation, not get to breed. If all these mature animals were there, these would have probably been fought off and not had the opportunity to. Bring so you're those. literally now it's just, yeah that, okay it came full circle in my mind when you said it that way. So you're literally creating a stronger herd by doing it that way because the stronger ones are the ones that naturally, um, per mother nature so to speak, are the ones that actually get to breed, whereas the ones right. that are inferior genetics et cetera et cetera those are the ones that might not get the opportunity to breed because they are not actually the ones fit to do so. Wow, man, that's really right. fascinating. I've not thought about a lot of these things. Um, so so does, on, a, on a sidestep to that, you know, I've only heard of QDMA, um, Quality Deer Management Association. Do you do you have any uh, affiliations with that organization or do they practice some of that for, for those reasons I would imagine? You know, I have absolutely no uh, affiliation <laughs> with them and honestly have never spoke to any of them. So, I don't, you know, I know they do some good work. Uh, I'm sure a lot of biologists see uh, somewhat parallel, but uh, I mean, you, you know, may talk to three biologists and get three similar, but different answers, but that is just the basic uh, building block of how, you know, the entire survival of the fittest chain is made. So if we can allow these more mature, older deer to survive, we're, naturally developing that herd got it okay well that makes a lot of sense so you know i don't know um you know we, we so there's been a couple of um i don't know the recent example i see and this is one where you had actually reached out to me um uh, talking about this this recent world record buck i believe it was shot out of illinois um said to be 51 points that's the last post that I saw about it. I, I did do a bit of Googling there and I, I dove into Facebook because I wanted to get a sense for some of the comments that were coming at that. Um, if you look at an animal like that and that's, it's crazy. That one, it sounded like, you know, from what I could read, there wasn't a whole lot of trail cam activity. A lot of people hadn't really reported seeing an animal like that or didn't know that it was there. Um, and I believe this guy had only been deer hunting for maybe four years or something. Um, previous that he was a really big, you know, uh, bird hunter. Um, you but seeing an animal that big, that's I think they estimate to be about seven or eight years old. You know, no, I don't know. About... Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. It's the lag between us. I apologize. Go ahead. Well, I mean, if you were going where I, I thought you were with that, 
is mm-hmm. how does an animal like that survive in an area and no one see it? But again, you have certain animals in that herd that are very reclusive and, and they keep a very extremely small home area and often don't leave it to, for any other reason other than breeding. But then occasionally we'll see certain bucks that don't have that crazy need to, to rut and chasing does everywhere. And we see that more often than you would think. Um, just recently, I remember there was one particular buck I was hunting named Shorty, and I observed him from, you know, some distance. I had a lot of trail cam pictures of him. But um, one day right in the peak of the rut, I saw him over the point. I was in a tree stand, and he was about 150 yards from me. There was no chance of getting a shot. He wasn't coming my way, but he was feeding on some acorns on this little point. And there was just rutting activity activity everywhere there was a couple small eight points just chasing does back and forth it's right in the peak mid-morning and this eight point was running this doe right at him and run it right by his face and he never even thought about chasing that doe he stuck his head Hmm. right back down and started eating so you got to wonder how many of those big mature bucks react similarly and is that why that we just rarely see them how many of them are predominantly nocturnal for whatever reason Um, so you know there's a lot of factors that you got to look into that without knowing that area and hunting it and talking to other hunters but i would find interviewing some of those very interesting that is super interesting it's it's funny to think like we we lump these animals together as a herd which you know you know of course we would but it's funny to to forget that they all have such like i think about it like dogs right like dogs can all fall in a very similar category amongst each other right but there's so many unique personalities that exist and behavior patterns and different things well, where there's, there's similarities but there are some very very minute and specific differences two deer um, that we hunted at the same time on one particular property um, one was bouncer and one was a deer a friend of mine killed Ethan McAllister named Newboy. And Newboy would be on a trail cam picture with does and other bucks. He was just this real docile. Um, you know, he was a net booner. I think he netted 174. Just a monster of a buck. But he was really a docile deer. And we had another buck during that same time period we called Bouncer. When he came into the trail cam picture, there was never another deer. Never. You never got a picture of him with any other deer the entire three years. I think we had pictures of him. And that showed you he was extremely aggressive. He come in, run everything off, where new boy was just, you know, didn't care. So you could learn, if you really pay attention to trail cam pics, you can learn so much about that particular animal. Yeah, I mean, I again, you're just this is becoming such an enlightening podcast um, due to the fact that these are all like nuggets of information I'm going to go back and listen to and 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 kind of take into account because um, you know I had I forget um, I think it was Anthony Heller was on and we were talking about trail cams and kind of more along the lines of like where you place them et cetera et cetera things like that but not not thinking about like 
are you seeing a deer with other deer and what's the consistency of that deer getting caught on camera? People look at the time of day and the temperature and, and things like that. And I never would have thought to consider, is it a buck that you're going to see with other bucks or other deer and, and things like that? Huh. Do you think if you, do you think there's, you know, correlation and causation, you know, don't always go hand in hand, but do you, do you think that the, the correlation between, you know, a buck that you see without other bucks, that might be that more recluse one that you're talking about. Um, do you think if you place well, a trail camera and you're getting that one a lot, do you, do you think maybe that one is, you might be closer to his bed than you might think? Well, I think there's several things you can look at here. And that's why I try to tell people all the time, it's no different in fishing, that it's being a, a successful hunter, the guy that kills big deer every year is not this big enlightening thing it's lots of little tiny things that you have to pay attention to and it's just you know just like studying your trail cameras and noticing things that you just don't casually glance at and pay attention to but you've got to really you know study the animal and and animals in your area but to answer your question there's several things that you look at well if you just had one camera that you only saw him on, then, you know, then we start thinking he's that reclusive deer. He's got a really tight home area. And then I'm going to come back to that in a minute because I'm going to give you another scenario. But if you see him on multiple cameras and he's always alone, then it tells you he's a really aggressive deer. He is always uh, running everything off, which can make him easier to hunt because he is the most likely to respond to a call. Um, new boy, he never, you never saw a picture of him aggressive. He was always, you know, if it was a camera at a feeding location or one of the protein feeders, he was just feeding with the other deer. It didn't matter if it was a middle of October or August, he was always the same attitude. So he was not a likely deer to respond to, to a, a call or, or hunting in that particular way. So it, you just, you got to pay attention. He's not going to come to rattling. You got to pay attention to the little things with these deer. And, and there's going to be a lot of deer that you hunt that won't have any outstanding characteristics, but another <laughs> sure. particular deer we hunted, um, he was one of the deer we only got on one camera. And this was a very small area because we had cameras in a, a large circle around it. Couldn't get pictures of him. We hunted this deer and for, an entire season killed him on the last day of the season, actually on the December 31st. And what made him so difficult is how we had to set up on him. I felt like we could never get in there that he didn't know we had gotten in the stand because mm-hmm. he lived in such a tiny area and, but we couldn't hunt him anywhere else because he wouldn't go anywhere else. He stayed right there. He had everything he needed, and he would not leave it. And we're talking about a really small area, you know, around 10 to 15-acre area. So it was extremely difficult to get in there and hunt him without him knowing you'd entered it. But we finally were able to. He slipped up. We got in there super early one morning, and uh, and it finally worked out. But you just got to pay attention to these things and and be really observant when you're you're not hunting a two and a half year old deer there's a exponential difference between that two and a half and three and a half than a five and a half and a six and a half i mean 
they've seen so much more. Their brain is so much more developed. Uh, they're a lot more intelligent. They know their area better. So there's a lot of differences. I saw um, bow hunting last year. You know, I was, I was trying to put some new knowledge into, into play in the field. And this is another one of those hindsight scenarios where if I would have heard what you just said, um, I could have changed the trajectory of that hunt. So I was literally witnessing a, a bigger, more mature buck chase off. He chased off three other smaller bucks. Um, that might have been a perfect opportunity for me to try to to ground them or something. You know, I didn't even it didn't even Absolutely. cross my mind. You know, I was so just entranced and watching this happen. I was like, holy, holy crap, this is exciting. You know, um, and I was thinking, you know, maybe I could go upwind and and all these different things and try to you know, grunt at them that way and draw them in and, and, you know, it just didn't happen. Um, that's fascinating. You know, maybe a snort wheeze, something along that yeah. course. So I encourage everyone, you know, we, we use uh, protein feeders and we have mineral sites and we feed different types throughout the season. I encourage everyone to, to put their camera on video um, you know, trail cameras, the covert camera is great for us. It, it works incredible. We get a lot of good footage, but the, the sheer amount of vocalization at a feeding location in late summer, early fall can be incredible. How many snort wheezes you're going to hear and just how much deer do low soft grunts and how verbal they really are in their communications. I mean, they make a lot, a lot of sounds. So a lot of, I think, but I can't remember if it was you guys, uh, when I talked to you and Dave, it may have been, but someone was telling me, it, and I might be, I might be wrong, but someone was telling me that, you know, deer, when they're, when they're like, you know, um, scraping and, and doing these different rubs or whatever, that when they're, when they're you know, peeing on these, on these scrapes, that they're actually using that as a, a communication tool. Is that, was that you guys that I think told me that? Yeah, they, Is that that yeah, they use scrapes year round. I mean, they're, they use them for rutting activity. They use them to communicate does with fawns, the bucks to does. I mean, yeah, yep. they, they are super easy. fascinating animals. Like the, no wonder you're so interested in them as we all are, you know, they're just so interesting that, that to be that in tune with your senses of nature as that animal, like it's no wonder they're ghosts in the woods to us hunters. It's just, it's really mind blowing. Yeah, they, that's what makes them so exciting to chase. If they were easy, I don't think it would be near the, the challenge wouldn't be there. We wouldn't be so enthralled with hunting them. It, it really is hard to explain. You know, my, my wife, who I think might have joined in on this live, live session or whatever, um, I, I can't articulate and explain why I'm so drawn to this challenge, why I'm willing to after being up all night with our daughter, still able to get up at you know, the crack of dawn and, and discussing weather and go sit and wait for these things and go hunt them down and, and do that cat mouse kind of game. The challenge is just so, so, so exciting. Um, and it's a lifelong challenge to try to get them more mature, which I think it's just super exciting to play that game of chess with them. There's no question. It's uh, And once you get, once you get that, 
desire to chase these things. I don't know that it ever goes away. It just keeps getting worse and worse. It's getting worse, yeah, or better, however you want to look at it. Yeah, I mean, my driving is no is no good anymore because every open field I go past, I'm looking for whitetail. You know, it's not safe for anybody, but I can't help myself. You you know you've got it bad when you're driving down the interstate and you find places to hang a tree stand in the median. Yeah, <laughs> that's exactly what I do. I'm like, oh my god, I wonder if that's public land. <laughs> oh gosh, that's great. Well, I mean, so. You know, there's a lot of pride in hunting and there's obviously a ton of heritage and, you know, most of us seem to do it for the right reasons or what I would think would be the right reasons. And to try to shift the conversation just a little bit here, you know, I, I think something you and I discussed was, you know, you know, what's some of the science behind these other, these other um, bad eggs or bad actors, if you want to call them that, razzing and, and bullying some hunters, you know, it, it used to be the case, you get a little one and, oh, that's too little, you should have let him go. And, and, and it goes the other way too, if it's too big, it's, oh, well, you must have been a fenced hunter, he paid all this money. And there's just really people taking all this joy um, from our own. And that's, it's sad to see because we want hunting to be around for a very, very long time. Um, obviously, I know you have some thoughts on that, so I'll shut up and let you go. I'll let you talk. Well, I mean, you broke up there at the very end, but uh, I don't know. I lost you for a second. But we were talking about earlier on how it seems like we're getting so divided, whether, you know, again, you get a kid that kills a four-point and someone wants to to slam on him or, or a guy, again, kills one too big or always something negative to say. And we as hunters have far too many people opposing our sport as it is we need to stand together and and i can see this argument on the guy that kills the small deer i can see the the guy that wants to kill a mature buck i can see his argument but it doesn't mean we should voice our opinions and be negative i don't know what happened to the old adage that you know your mom taught you that if you can't say something good, don't say anything at all. But it seems like with social media, that that rule has been long forgotten. Um, but one of the things, you know, to give some validity to both sides of this, we, you and I talked about this, I think, last time. Um, you got a guy uh, or gal that has one or two weekends a year to hunt. And he is as passionate about it as you and I are, but he has a job. He's got a family, he's got kids, he just does not have the time to get out in the tree stand. And he gets out Saturday morning, a four-point walks by him or a spike or whatever. What, that is not our right to judge him for killing that, and I am happy for him to do so. You know, that's his right, it's legal, there is nothing wrong with that. Now, if he goes back out the next three weekends, and kills another four-pointer spike, then, hey, maybe he should have done something a little differently. And I think that's where, you know, group A has an argument. And it's the same for, you know, the guy that goes out and his desire, he has more time. He he has all summer to check cameras and and to prepare for a buck that he's been seeing. He has... 20 days to dedicate to hunting a particular deer there's nothing wrong with him getting out there and waiting as long as he wants to and passing up everything that he does not want to take and that's his right but i think we need to respect each other's point of view 
Now, again, I think it can be gone too far with the guy that, you know, that keeps going out and habitually killing little small deer and, and in the same year, you know, let those little bucks go and kill a few does. Uh, but again, I think, do, do you understand my point there? And does that clarify my stance on it any at all? No, it totally does. Um, the point makes a lot of sense. There's validity in what you're saying. Um, you know, and I could take that maybe a little bit further in, in that, you know, there's, there's some people that, um, I guess you just don't know anyone's situation, you know, so, so it really should be a judgment free zone across the board. Um, you just have no clue how many people are trying to feed. Are they donating it to, you know, we have venison donation programs here in Wisconsin. That could be something that they're doing. Um, you, you just don't know, but, you know, to your point earlier about the herd will never become, maybe not never, but it won't become, or it's less likely to become as healthy because these, these bucks aren't getting to that maturity level um to breed stronger deer so to speak um but for the guys that don't hunt for the quote-unquote trophy i guess maybe it doesn't matter to them but you know i like to think that a big buck is a sign of hunting a smart animal and to me that seems to be the trophy that i'm after the antlers are a bonus it tells something about that animal if they are bigger to me if it's an older deer it was it likely was harder to hunt right than the one that is one, two, three years old. And, and one thing that you said is that they might not know their area is good, the deer. Um, even consider that. If it's a younger animal, how likely is it that it has no idea where it's really going? And, and to some degree compared to a five or six-year-old animal, right? Um, so, no, what you said makes a lot of sense. I, I, I very much do agree with what you're saying there. Absolutely. Well, again, we don't know the situation. I think we have to view everything um, as supporting one another. You know, it's not our right to judge the, the laws, say it's perfectly legal for him to go do that. So, again, I think we all need to, as hunters, take the stance if you can't say something nice and just don't say anything at all. Yeah, and just take a second, too. You know, I've seen people get heated in these social media battles or, or whatever you want to call it. And some people end up eating crow, right? Because <laughs> they're so hot to just want to respond right away and, and say whatever's on their mind and, and not doing away with what you just said. Like, if you can't say something nice, don't say it all. Well, they certainly aren't following that rule. Um, and then you follow the thread a little bit and you end up seeing it kind of come back around and they go, oh, I didn't know. Of course you didn't know, you know, so maybe you should think a little bit, just um, take a second before you write that post and hit enter or submit or whatever, and try to be mindful. Like, it's like road rage. You don't know what that person's going through, right? Absolutely. It's a whole different topic. <laughs> it is a whole different topic, but often, um, I like what you said there, just take a minute because quite often if you just walk away close your phone, you probably won't respond at all and you'll just let it go. Yep. Yeah, well, I get your blood boiling for no reason, you know. But it's, the, the, there, there is, um, you know, for all the negativity, you know, that, that tends to be what I've noticed is the 1%, but that 1% stands out like a sore freaking thumb and it's, it's unfortunately, it's, um, it's very toxic and that toxicity can really spread. I think the positivity um, ought to be louder and I think you know, 90% of what you see is, is actually positive. You know, I'll, I'll share the screen here um, 
for those of you watching live, let me get to where I need to go to do that. And um, what you'll see is this thread that, that I pulled up from this record buck in Illinois. And, and you can start to get a sense for it, people are just making these, you know, witty remarks where they think they're being clever. And, but it's just, why? Why do you have to do that? You know, why do you have to rip someone down and tear them down? But then if you keep going, as I'm doing here, the rest of it really is more positive. It's congratulations, congratulations. And now on Facebook, congratulations, stands out in orange and it throws confetti, so it's really easy to see all the orange congrats. So that's great. But out of the gate, it was all of these negative people. But what I what I love is when the community kind of drowns those those bad actors out um, when they stand up for those people. Hey, no, I know him personally. That is a real buck. He did get it here, you know. Um, I, I love it when that kind of happens, when it kind of the community polices itself. Yeah, I agree. When we can stand up for one another, that that's where we need to be. Again, we we just have too much opposition uh, from outside groups that we need to stand together and and all stand for a sport that we love, and and sometimes. You know, maybe the guy that uh, is killing too many of one particular, you know, a certain year class, maybe he needs to see the the guy that's for buck management needs to see his point a little bit. The same as the guy that's for the buck management needs to see the other guy's point of view. So we just need to be a little more open-minded, um, see each other's points, and, and move on. I agree. And one thing, one thing that struck me that I'm excited to, to say out loud here on this on this episode is, you know, I was trying to think about today's topic a little bit and prepare my mind. And um, if someone told you that hunting was going away, right? If that was a new law or a bill being passed, that there's no more. Now, I'm I'm really big on the public land side of things. Um, you know, the app that I've developed speaks to that. The podcast speaks to that. Um, that's what I spend most of my time doing is something public property. And so my mind went there. I couldn't really help it, but my mind went there under the context of if someone said I couldn't hunt public land anymore, you know, I bet you I'd be willing to get along with everybody in hunting to some degree. Right. Um, but that thinking about it that way changes the dynamic a little bit. Like if someone said, you know, if you keep treating people like this, you're not going to be able to hunt. You know, if this whole thing was policed by the DNR, if the DNR suddenly was able to infiltrate Facebook and, and catch these bad actors and give them tickets just like they could for poaching, um, you know, that would be a big game changer. You, you wouldn't do that anymore, right? And it's just not right. You don't do it in person. So I don't know why people do it behind a keyboard. It's very it's very interesting to me, the psychology behind what people are willing to say behind a keyboard that they will never say to someone's face. Yeah, they, that is definitely true. They will say a lot of things. They're extremely brave and uh, manners go out the door when they're just staring at that keyboard. Yeah, keyboard cojones or used to be called phone cojones, right? But in person, tail between the legs. It's just unfortunate, yeah. you know, and it's just um, something that I think, you know, a, a number of us, the people that, that watch this episode, that listen to this podcast, you know, I've pumped this message out plenty. Just be louder about being positive, you know, and help and help drown out the negative and the, the negative as best you can. And just take a second and think and think about if hunting weren't around, you know, would you still treat people the same way if it was on the line? You broke up there again, but I think ah. your point 
sorry about that. I didn't catch what you said, but I I think again, to your point, um, we just need to be more positive and and spread that message, support hunting. We all love it and, and see the, the good that we're doing. I mean, there's a lot of groups out here that are working towards better habitat and uh, working with the local game agencies. So there's a lot of positives going on in the hunting community. We'd be much better served to focus on that. Yeah, totally agree. So um, maybe we'll, we'll we'll wrap up a little bit, um, you know, kind of going back to the, the initial kickstart of the conversation about antler growth and, and shed hunting, you know, there's some fairly obvious tips about where to look for sheds and things like that. But, you know, um, the scientific approach and talking to a biologist, which I don't do every day, I'd love to hear your, your input on, you know, giving us a leg up when we're out in the field looking for these things. You know, one of the, the biggest keys for me, shed hunting, is one of my favorite tools, is a pair of binoculars. And I see a lot of guys, you know, out shed hunting without them, but you'd be surprised how many I find with binoculars. And I, I carry a pair of Vortex everywhere I go. And if I'm walking a game trail, now my particular method for shed hunting is I like to walk around the edges of some of the food plots and fields, but then I'll just take off out these trails and and try to stay on as many trails as possible. Obviously, the heavier worn trails um, have more traffic, so you're just playing the odds. But you'll often see what appears to be an antler or a shed 15, 20 yards away, or maybe even 15 yards off the side of the trail where I can just throw my glasses up, look real quick exactly what it is. Is it a stick? And keep moving without having to zigzag so much. So I find a lot with those those binoculars. And if I was going to give one tip, that is definitely it. And the second one would be um, I see so many people basically staring at their feet. And you, know, you I'm that won't guy. find too many. Yeah, you won't find too many little sheds this way, but I like to look 8 to 10 yards ahead of me and a really wide path, and I walk pretty quick. And you just train your eye to catch that odd uh, material laying there that just looks a little different. So not staring at your feet using binoculars, the two biggest tips I have. Not real scientific, but I promise you they're field proven. (laughs) Hey, that's pretty cool. You know, it's funny because... You know, as any any seasoned hunter, even that of an inexperienced one, like the one thing we tend to, you know, look for more glassing is as antlers, and that's usually the first thing that jumps out at me when I'm glassing, and that's how I spotted, um, I think, three of the bucks I saw last year. I saw them with the binoculars, and I wouldn't have without them. I just, there, there's no way. Um, and so it's it's interesting to know how how easily that antler stood out and stopped me in my tracks as I was glassing them, um, this marsh, and so. Again, another, you know, face palm moment. <laughs> I'm going to have to have you more often. These are just great nuggets. Hopefully everyone else is getting all, all sorts of good info out of this one, too. I know I am. I appreciate it, Jeremy. Oh, no problem. I'm, I'm glad you had me on. You know, I think when the community gets together and we, we share some of our own information, we all come away learning something that we didn't know. Tip of the week. If you're going to get into podcasting, man, I can't tell you how.
how tired I am. It's a lot of work. And sometimes software updates just make things a nightmare. Um, but I really loved how Jeremy just ended this episode and just trying to lift up the whole industry and being positive. I don't mean to be cheesy about it. I bang the same drum. It's not a hunting tactic or tip. But I think my tip that I, that I said in the, in the actual interview was just take a second and think about things before you post. And I think I'm speaking to a good group of people. I think most of the people that consume this content and listen to this podcast um, are the right of the right mindset. So I guess it's just an ask of make it even better and louder. Um, ask more of the audience that listens to this and, you know, putzes around on Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and everywhere else and go wild on these other places. Um, I know there's a lot of different groups and hunting groups and those things are policed pretty well. So those communities tend to do pretty good. If someone's a bad actor, they get, they get the boot, uh, pretty quick, but the rest of the internet, you know, I don't know, just look out for people, have everyone's back and, um, you know, look at hunting as a whole. And, you know, I've been trying to take this approach lately that if, if it were to go away, how would I treat it, right? If we're, if we're on the brink of extinction and I couldn't have access to public land, how would I treat hunting if that were the case? And that's kind of my approach to, you know, the where to hunt app and that kind of stuff. But I think the same thing applies for some of the social media bullying that goes on is, you know, we have to kind of come together and become a united front and, and strengthen numbers and all that good stuff. So these, these asshats that are out there bashing people, um, just bury them with positivity. And I've always said in the past, um, to the, the people that know me well, kill them with kindness. That's been a, a fun tactic I've deployed for people I, I've come across that I haven't been too fond of is just be the bigger person. So anyway, that's my tip of the week. Um, I liked Jeremy's tip about using binoculars when shed hunting. I'm sure a lot of us do that already. You know, I actually hadn't and, and didn't and, and don't, but will do now. And I'm actually really excited to get out and duh, right? Face palm. I should certainly be bringing my binoculars with me. Um, so anyway, good luck out there with the shed hunting this season and good luck scouting. And we'll have a lot, a lot more great guests coming on as, as we you know, continue to march on into new territory for 2019. Have a great day and hunt public.